Canto 6 of The Paradise is Dante doing big history. Um, it's a great sweep of the Roman period through to the times of Dante himself. Um, the commentators note that he includes 38 or more kings, emperors, rulers in his great account. And one way to read this canto is to sit down with the text and a commentary and just go through all the different people that he names and how he describes them and work out what history he includes and doesn't include. Um, it can be a fun hour or two. Um, here I'm going to focus on the bigger sense of his big history. Um, I think this is Dante in the paradise paralleling what he had done in the Inferno when we encountered the story of the old man of Crete and how civilizations can lose sight of their true gold and silver and leaning on their weaker terracotta legs begin to crumble. And there there was a sense of civilization in its tragic mode. Um, we also encountered a similar take on big history in the purgatory um, when we were in the valley with the rulers, um, where it all seemed um, a bit unclear, a bit purposeless, um, a bit drifting and unfocused. Um, that was another way, if you like, of looking at history, just sort of one damn thing after another. Um, but here in the paradise, um, we see history um, subspecie eternitatis from the perspective of eternity. And a way of summarising it, I think, is um, the irony of history. Um, that in times that we take to be very good, truly terrible things can be happening. But conversely, in times which we take to be truly bad, when horrific things are done, when things seem to be falling apart, very good things might be unfolding buried beneath the headlines, buried beneath what seem to be the standout events. And I think that's partly what Dante is driving at in this canto. He's also asking us to reflect on our own stance to history, um, to the part which we play in it, um, how much responsibility we feel for it, um, you know, how to live through it, and particularly times that seem pretty troubled, as indeed ours do now. And I think what it's advocating is a kind of stance which at once does care what's going on. And there's no doubt that Dante himself deeply cared about what was going on in his own times, um, at the battles between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, his own exile, and that is mentioned in this canto. But at the same time, this canto is advocating a kind of detachment from things at the same time with a growing awareness or a deeper sight that more eternal purposes might be unfolding. And if we can focus on those, as well as realising that this earth does come to an end, history does come to an end, for all the attempts to make things right or to all the times that things have gone terribly wrong, um, that enables us to, at the same time, stand back um, to focus on um, the bigger picture which even the biggest history is situated within which of course is the unfolding purposes of um, our coming from and returning to God our descent and ascent 
So it's a rather brilliant canto in its own way, because it's both about the biggest story of life here on Earth, but also is about our individual stances towards our own life and times. Now it's very striking that this all comes in the sphere of Mercury, um, in this mercurial frame of mind, um, this sphere of existence which is shaped by not all being what it seems. And I think we're very much asked to adopt that stance in reading this canto. Um, this is the sphere in which what seems like a shining light may actually be um, a distraction from the true light or may be a more or less ill um, reflection of the true light. Um, it in a way can't but help be part of God's light because everything is, but at the same time things can become distorted and the mercurial spirit is one of to puzzle with it, to wrestle with it, to try and discern what is not exactly the wrong path to follow but which is but a hint or a steer towards a deeper path um, that we must try and pick up on even as we wrestle with the events that it describes. And this irony is directly intimated in the way that Canto V ended. If you remember Dante was standing before one particular soul and he tells us that this next canto now, Canto VI, um, is going to enwrap us much as this soul was enwrapped in a mix of his own light and also divine light. Um, and we learn um, at the beginning of Canto VI that this soul is actually the Emperor Justinian, the sixth emperor of the Byzantine Age. Um, and he's a really good character to be meeting in this sphere because he is someone who is a real mix of a historical figure. You know, sometimes he's portrayed um, as a weak figure, especially against um, the strength of his wife Theodora. Um, sometimes he's seen as a great reformer. Um, sometimes he's seen as um, a great almost saint. You know, it was Justinian that built Hagia Sophia um, in Constantinople, in Istanbul. Um, so he's a real mix himself. Um, he at once pursues God's ways and was clearly a pious man, but at the same time um, seeks his own fame, his own glory. Um, you know, he does admirable things and he does truly horrific things. Um, just in parenthesis, one thing which he did was finally close Plato's Academy in 529 AD. And Tolkien's word, you catastrophe, came to my mind when I was thinking about well, Justinian, but also the meaning of this canto. Um, this is a good thing that happens in spite of seeming absolute catastrophe. Um, and so in a way, Dante gets an answer to both his questions from the previous canto. You know, he wondered who this soul was, of course. He learns that it's Justinian. But also he wonders why this soul is in the sphere of Mercury. Um, knowing now that souls reflect divine light in different ways, um, he is beginning to get the sense that Justinian is presenting, manifesting himself in the sphere of Mercury because the good things he did, he often did in spite of himself. Um, and that is um, a lesson um, that Dante can begin to wrestle with, a truth about reality, um, which he must understand in order to continue his own ascent. You know, if you think about it, this is something Dante personally really had to wrestle with and achieve um, because he did suffer hugely um, because of historical events. 
and if he was going to stay completely preoccupied with what had happened to him, as can seem to be the case given some of his reactions, particularly in the Inferno, to the characters he's meet, he meets, you know, he's lambasting against um, the sins of popes, the crimes of popes, and so on. Um, if he clung to that too much, he wouldn't be able to complete the ascent. Um, he would perhaps also have concluded that history has no meaning, it is just one thing after another, and so have given up hope of a wider story within, within which li our lives um, are situated. Um, and just to make one more comment about that, because this canto also has quite a remarkable shape. Um, on the one hand, it's actually all Justinian speaking, um, perhaps echoing Justinian's own vainglory and his position in it, um, but in a way also giving us a kind of um, full account so we can step beyond just the details of history as well. Um, so even in that moment, uh, Justinian's vainglory is also enabling us to have a wider perspective. The bad, the fallen, the corrupt can be the unexpected channel of what's good and clear and more enlightened. Um, but Justinian seems himself to intimate that he knows something of that now. He is in paradise because his story actually ends with a second account um, of an individual life, a chap called Romeo. And his story is that he was a pilgrim, a rather humble figure, who was caught up um, in the court of a king and became rather good at that job in the court. He married off the king's daughters, um, so they all became queens um, in the medieval period. Um, but then other courtiers turned against him, um, and he returned to the pilgrim life from whence he came and so became much more directly aligned with the path towards God. And in some ways, his personal story is um, a parable for how we might relate to history in our own times. Um, that if we lose touch with the deeper pilgrimage that we're on, then we risk losing touch with everything that has meaning. But also, at the same time, sometimes we do get caught up in history's events and must play them as best we can. Dante tells his story um, as the story of the eagle of history sweeping across time. And this gives us a sense that, again, um, this isn't just about individuals as if they were the sole agents of all things. There's a deeper story that's unfolding throughout history, um, represented by the great sweep of the eagle across time. People work better or worse with that tendency um, at different times, much as they work better or worse with God's deeper purposes at different times as well. Um, but maybe just landing on two or three moments that are in this canto to um, spell that out. I mean, I think that Justinian's own story um, shows how at sometimes we can be aligned with God's purposes, at other times there can be a kind of tension, a confusion, even a struggle, a competition um, with divine plans, and then at other times there can be completely misalignment against, um, you know, travesties of God's purposes. I mean, Justinian sees that in his own life. So, for example, Dante tells the story of Justinian's conversion to Christianity. He says, actually, that Justinian was a monophysite, 
um, to start with that he thought Jesus was holy God here on earth and was then corrected and realised the truth of the incarnation, that it was this extraordinary bringing together of mortal and immortal natures of the human and the divine. So that was an occasion when he was aligned with God's will. Another one where he's trying to do God's will um, and, you know, more or less succeeds, more or less fails, um, is in his great legal reform, um, the Justinian Law, which tried to um, sort, purge, um, identify the best of Roman law. Um, now, you know, bringing order on earth is no bad thing, but of course bringing order also necessarily brings injustices in its own wake. Um, if it sings itself too highly, then it makes the mistake of thinking that heaven can be made manifest as a place on earth, this spiritual materialism, which always causes suffering. And so Justinian's reforms, Justinian's legal reforms, have this quality of being a mixed blessing. Such is even good reform, good history. But then there's also a mention of a time where Justinian undoubtedly committed atrocities, although actually in this canto, in the voice of Justinian, Dante presents him saying that that too was part of the good things that he did in his reign. Remember, this is uh, a mercurial, tricksterish canto. You've got to see through what's being said, because Justinian says um, that he um, handed over the business of war to his great general, Belisarius, in order that he could pursue a more religious time of his life. Um, but of course, um, it's known in history that Justinian um, did hand power to Belisarius, but also did terrible things to his great general, including blinding him. Um, so that was a moment when Justinian was at his most corrupt. So we see three levels of Justinian's story, um, much as for these different levels of history, and we're invited to consider the moments where it's more aligned and when it's wrestling with, but also when it's clearly against. And noting too that Dante tells his history not to try to give a factual account, but to try to show the meaning of history, which can actually be obscured in the events of history itself. And um, so hence, when reading this canto, um, the point is not whether Dante gets his facts right or wrong. Um, it's actually a mix of um, right and wrong, as modern historians would tell us. But the point is that all the time he's driving through to this deeper perception and so asking us to see that, which is the deepest truth of events here on Earth. Another character in his tale, um, which stands out now at least, um, is the figure of Tiberius, um, the third emperor um, after Augustus, as um, Dante describes him. Now he's well known now as one of the most debauched of Roman emperors, but it's also under his rule that Jesus is crucified, um, clearly a crucial moment in the Christian story and so in Dante's big history as well. And the significance of that is that at the one level, um, you know, Tiberius oversaw a system of punishment which was absolutely horrific, um, was used to oppress as much as to um, bring people um, to book. Um, and Jesus is one of the victims of that terrible system. And yet, at the same time, the crucifixion is one of the great turning points in history. 
um, it's actually a moment that God used to bring people back towards divine ways. Um, incidentally, in ways that Dante will discover more of as we get more into paradise. So it stands for one of those moments when terrible things happen in terrible times, and yet buried in the monstrosity and the horrific events, good things are actually happening in Tolkien's sense of new catastrophe. They seem part of the catastrophe themselves, and yet turn out to be these turning points, these moments where good breaks through. So here in Paradise, as Dante talks to Justinian and reflects on deep history, his own times, um, God's salvific history, um, these souls are all realising that in a way their involvement with their life and times, necessary as it was, um, even as they gave themselves to it as best they could, they can see now that it was all a bit of a necessary failure on one level, even as God's goodness was being worked out still. And so it's right that their light, their earthly light, wrestles somewhat with divine light, much as Mercury's light um, can fight against the sun's light and eventually be eclipsed by it. Um, and there's a personal note within all this as well, um, I think. Um, Dante doesn't directly come to this in the canto, but you know, this is also something about our own histories, how we react to events in our own lives. And because at one level, we react to them as human beings, you know, we're slighted in some way, and we act, we react um, as humiliated, or we react as angered, or we react as vengeful, um, or we react as self-pitying. And that is, in a way, like um, the... Um, the moments in history, the ups and downs of history. Um, but then maybe we take half a step back and we feel somewhat um, pitiful of ourselves and we feel that all this is meaningless. You know, what does our life add up to? And why do these things happen? Why isn't there a clear arc? Why isn't there an overarching story of good? And that's another moment of dejection or even self-accusation when we might say, look, I was just getting my just desserts. This is the person I am. That was the events I got involved with. What else could I expect but at the end of the day to suffer? That also can be both a personal experience and an experience of a certain place in a certain time. But there's a third position as well, which is when, in a way, all that happens is accepted. All that happens begins to be seen a bit more in the round. It's the equivalent of Picarda getting her life and accepting it. And then you might say that we suffer innocently. And this is a phrase that Helen Luke uses in her commentary on the Divine Comedy. And in that moment of accepting the suffering, um, undergoing it as it is, we also rise above it. We also start to gain this perspective, subspecie eternitatis. We can move beyond the categories of justice and its preoccupation with what is right and what is wrong by seeing how that certainly applies in some moments, in some times and places, but is never the whole story. And Dante engaging with this wider sense at this moment 
in his journey through paradise is a crucial part of his own continuing ascent. And I think he's saying it can be a crucial part of our ascent, the development of our wider vision, the development of our capacity for more than just the events of this life.